guys it always is and uh, appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts with you about marriage um you know in first corinthians 7 paul was dealing with the corinthian church and they were all confused about marriage and who could marry who and when could you marry and so he was setting them straight the verse i want to read uh, from that chapter is uh, but if you marry you have not sinned this in first corinthians 7 28 you have not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. So I've never forgotten that verse. I forget when I ever heard it for the first time, but that whole part about you're going to have trouble in this life if you marry kind of struck home. It must have been my early marriage years. Susan and I were married 50 years, and um, the first number of years were challenging, as I think they are for a lot of couples. But, you know, when I look at that word trouble, it means pressed together, under pressure, a state of condition of distress, annoyance, or difficulty, a condition of doing something badly or only with great difficulty. And I thought to myself, when I look at that definition, I said, doing something badly. It must be a lot of people living badly because I had a... Um, I used to I talk sometimes on the secret to a happy marriage, and I told people it must be a secret because so few marriages, even in the church, are happy and healthy. Um, several years ago, I was reading an interview by a divorce mediator from the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists, and uh, it was in our local paper, and she shared that Orange County has one of the highest divorce rates in the nation. On average, 33 people in Orange County initiate divorce proceedings every day, including weekends. The national divorce rate is 50%. In California, it's 60%. And in Orange County, it's 72%. So we got a problem with marriage. And we're not producing people in our culture that are good candidates for marriage because we've been a me culture. And there's a lot of reasons why people are struggling in marriage. But I think one of the big reasons is uh, they're consumed with, the, as Oswald Chambers would say, an insidious preoccupation with self. If we're going to look at the what God had in mind for marriage, and I first need to look at Galatians 2.20, where, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And what Paul is really saying is, I have turned my life over to Christ. Um, I have given up my right to myself. I have given God permission to help himself to my life. That's, a, that's what Paul's saying when he said, I've been crucified with Christ. And that's needed for the whole Christian life. But I think especially in marriage. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So that's a little preparation for looking at what we're going to look at today and the, the um, trouble with marriage. You know, I found 
it's four things, four attitudes that really have helped me in my marriage. And one is to realize that marriage is hard. It's difficult. Matthew Henry said uh, in regard to you're going to have trouble in marriage. He says marriage can involve conflicts, demands, difficulties, and adjustments that singleness does not because it presses two fallen people into intimate life that leads to inevitable trouble. The troubles of singleness may be exceeded by the conflicts of marriage. And Paul was dealing with the, with the Corinthians in that regard, saying that you're better off if you don't marry. But if you do, you haven't sinned, but you're going to have trouble. So marriage is hard, and so it's a struggle, it's a challenge. And when you know that up front, and you want to have a, a strong, happy, healthy marriage, you got to realize that it's going to take some work. It's not about me. That's another attitude. It's uh, giving up my right to myself. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. I'm not in control. There's so many things I have no control over. And uh, in marriage, we try to control each other. And um, the principle is what you don't trust, you try to control or have to control. And so when the husband or wife is trying to control the other, it's another way of saying, I don't trust you. So I have to tr control you. And that, that always brings conflict in marriage. And then the final one is this marriage will end. Every loving relationship will end in pain except one. And uh, we know which one that is. That's that relationship that we have with Christ. It'll never end. But I've lost my wife, as you all know. And um, I've shared this thought with so many people over the years in, in marriage classes that every loving relationship will end in pain, either the pain of divorce or the pain of death. And um, so we, I, as I kept that in mind, it really helped me when I, when I lost Susan because except one was very comforting. And I knew that my relationship with Christ was not going to end, even though my marriage has. Well, it hasn't. I'll share more about that in a minute, too. To understand what can, what can and does go wrong with marriage, let's look first at what God had in mind regarding marriage. To get a big picture of understanding marriage, we'd start with a critical understanding that a spirit of graceful submission is required for every person in life. And there cannot be peace without it. Graceful submission. When I looked up submission, it said to yield oneself to authority or the will of another, to give up completely or agree to forego, especially in favor of another, to give or render as fitting, rightfully owed, or required. I remember when I said my vows to Susan, and I don't remember what our vows were. They were probably um, traditional vows. I'll be there for you in good times and bad and rich times and poor and sickness and in health. That's probably what it was. But I didn't understand vows, and I didn't understand how God takes them seriously. And um, I had to learn that along the way. Submission is the name of the Christian game. It's the lifestyle of the believer. It is absolutely crucial that we understand submission if we're going to understand marriage as God designed it. You know, we probably all have a lot of books on marriage in our library or bookcases. But the 
and I've got a number of them, and they're all good. But the best that I like is a fellow named Mike Mason, who lives up in British Columbia. And he wrote a book called The Mystery of Marriage. And Mike gets down to the bone of spiritual life and marriage. He doesn't just stop with the meat. He gets to the bone. And uh, I want to read some excerpts from his book that have to do with what we're talking about. Marriage is both a giving and a taking away. Giving is apparent. It's our love for another human being. Taking away is not so apparent. It's the entire freedom to think and to act as an independent person. And so it really doesn't work when you're an independent person in marriage. If people understood the true depth of self-denial that marriage demands, there would be fewer marriages and fewer divorces. And in a very real sense, we should marriage should be viewed as a form of suicide. That kind of shook me when I read that the first time. It should not be viewed as a way of augmenting one's comfort, but rather a way of losing one's life for the sake of Christ. You know, it doesn't really work in life in general, in marriage in particular, to be a carnal Christian or a part-time Christian or a half-hearted Christian. What's required is a whole-hearted Christian back to submission. I've been crucified with Christ. I've given up my right to myself, self-denial. And if we don't understand that, we're going to have a problem in in all relationships, but especially in our marriages. He goes on to say marriage is not meant to be a comfort station for lazy people, but a systematic, deliberate, and thoroughgoing self-sacrifice. In marriage, we will be confronted with the plainest and ugliest evidence of our own sinfulness and will thus find it necessary on a daily basis to repent and change. And, of course, this raises a lot of problems, too, for us and causes problems in marriage because pride comes in. And we hate to be wrong, and we sometimes have a hard time forgiving. And if we can't say we're wrong, then we have a hard time repenting and changing. And what we're looking for oftentimes is for that our mate to change. As a matter of fact, um, well, I'm going to get to that later. I can do nothing of my own initiative, Jesus said. I hear and judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And that's a good verse for married people. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Marriage is a radical step, and it's not intended for anyone who's not prepared, indeed anxious, to surrender his own will and be wholeheartedly submissive to the will of another. For there is no way to surrender your will except to the will of another. You know, I'm sure that I didn't get any of this. We didn't have, we didn't have a lot of books on marriage back 50 years ago or 55 years ago now. And uh, I had no clue about any of this going into marriage. Uh, but I share these kind of things with couples that I'm going to do their ceremony and do their marriage counseling. I want to make sure they don't miss this. I want to make sure they understand what they're getting into. In marriage, the Lord has devised a gentle means for helping men and women humble themselves to surrender their errant wills. 
One writer said it simply and clearly in saying, marriage is a wild, audacious attempt to create an almost impossible degree of cooperation between two powerful centers of self-assertion. Two things marriage cannot see succeed without. One is a profound acceptance of the conditions of the struggle and the state of personal siege in which it must be lived out. Conditions of struggle, the state of personal siege in which it must be lived out. I thought I'd repeat that. An ever-growing realization that one's own self must not emerge as the winner of the struggle. So while you're struggling and you're battling each other, you got to make sure that you don't win. Because every time I want an argument with Susan, I lost. Because it hurt the relationship. Key thoughts that he shared in his book. Marriage at its best is a sort of contest at what might be called one-downmanship. A backward tug of war between two wills determined not to win. That is really the only attitude that works in marriage, for that's the way God designed marriage to be. However, there is one ironic, perhaps even bitter truth we must face. The very person we live most, love most in the world may appear to us from time to time to be the only thing standing between us and total happiness. When we marry, we make a non-negotiable decision to forsake all others. Right from the start, we must understand that the very act of selecting a lifetime mate and sitting down, settling down is a sort of throwing in the towel. It's a deliberate choice to be put on the shelf. In other words, to be taken out of circulation. One of the things that Susan and I really made us an effort to do was to convince the other person that they're the most important thing in our life next to Christ and to be faithful to them and to be faithful to each other. Um, they say there's about six steps to a broken relationship. And the first step is a honeymoon period. And during that honeymoon period, you're falling in love and you're dating and you're having feelings that you never had before and you found the right person. And um, so you see flaws in them, but you figure, she figures, well, I can fix that. And he figures that's not a big deal. And so that's a honeymoon period. And then they get married. And they go through a period called specific irritations. And that means that they start seeing the differences that they never saw before they married. Because now they're so intimately involved and live together. And um, so the specific irritations can be something like, well, Susan loved, to, loved it to be cool in the house. She would open the garage door about a foot. She would open the back door of the house about a foot. And we'd get a breeze blowing through. Well, I didn't like the breeze. I like to keep the house warm. And so I'd tell her, just shut that door. And she'd say, go put some clothes on. And I said, why don't you take some off? Somehow she didn't think that was a good idea. But there's all kinds of things that we find out um, that uh, are differences. And this specific irritations goes through a period of questioning. You stay, they start asking questions like, man, did I blow it here? Did I marry the wrong person? 
am I going to have to live with this the rest of my life? And so because there's no settling of that and because they don't have that repentant and change attitude, um, they realize they need some help. Now, most couples don't go to marriage counseling, and but if they do, um, they go to marriage counseling for help. And sometimes it helps, and a lot of times it doesn't. And so after that period of questioning, they're just exhausted. That's the fifth step. They just get exhausted. And because they can't settle their differences, they have divorce or separation. So when we marry, we're making a non-negotiable decision to forsake all others. I had to convince Susan that she was the number one priority in my life, and there were no distant seconds. And so she made a purpose in her life to convince me of that, and I made a purpose in my life to convince her of that. And um, so there are so many things that can pop up and come between us in that regard, and I can give her the idea that I may love something more than I love her. Uh, I can think of golf, and I remember when we were early married, uh, I'd be going to play golf, and she says, you're going to play golf again? What about, you're going to spend four hours with those guys? When am I going to get four hours of your time? It made me want to get back out on the bad golf course a little quicker. But then I remember the day she had been in a woman's Bible study, and they'd been studying the Christian marriage. And I remember the day I was headed out to play golf. And she said, oh, you're going to play golf? Good. I hope you had a great time. Beat those guys. And I was thinking, what happened to her? It kind of made me want to stay home, but tea times wait for no man, so I left. But I'll never forget that day when she was really working to encourage me in playing golf rather than hindering me from playing golf. And it made me want to stay home with her. That's the way it works. It's a deliberate choice to be put on the shelf, in other words, taken out of circulation. The decision to be married has the effect of closing more doors than any other single decision will ever make. Anyone who enters into marriage actually relinquishes the right to engage in any other adult relationship, which might be equally deep or pervasive. This is an interesting Thing he said, he said, one chooses one's mate as one chooses one's God, forsaking all others till death do us part. Our God is one God, and we don't believe in more gods than one, and he's three in one. And so we've forsaken all. When we came to know Christ, we forsake all others till death do us part. And so we're in it till the final bell. And choosing a marriage partner and entering into marriage is a true enunciation of all the rest of the world, keeping myself only unto thee. And, you know, Susan and I had a commitment to spiritual growth along the way. We were very fortunate to get involved with a navigator ministry in our home church in Birmingham before we moved to California. And actually, I was on their staff for four years, their scripture memory, their Bible study, their sharing your faith. Um, all the basics of Christianity we, we got schooled in and marinated in. And then having a quiet time and spending time alone with God and journaling uh, became so important to us. 
And you want to put the triangle up there, Phil? Um, yep. <clears throat> We're about to meet Herman and Lucille. There we go. Well, the marriage triangle and the, the spirit of the marriage triangle, the whole purpose that it shows us is that uh, we have God up there at the apex or Christ. And we have Harmon and Lucille down at the bottom. And you notice an arrow going between Herman and Lucille and an arrow going between Herman and God and Lucille and God. And the lesson of the triangle is the closer you get to Christ, the closer you get to each other um, in the relationship. And so I, I became personally responsible for all, my own walk with God because Susan couldn't do that for me. She could encourage me and pray for me, but I had to take ownership of my own spiritual walk as she did. She had to take care of her own spiritual walk with God. And as we begin to grow in our Christian lives and mature in our Christian lives, we um, grew closer to each other and we had more, more Christian character than we had had. And so it's like that tree planted by rivers of water in Psalm 1. But his, his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night and he'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bears its fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers. And so that's a good picture of a spiritual growth. When you're planted by the rivers of water, the word of God, through Christian fellowship, scripture memory, just those kind of things that you're doing and taking responsibility for your own walk with God. And the more patient I can be with her and her with me, because patience is one of the fruit of the spirit. He'll bear its fruit in its season. So love, joy, peace, goodness, Kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things begin to happen in our lives. And that enhances our marriage and our ability to settle conflict. And when we're spending a lot of time with God, you spend a lot of time repenting and changing. And uh, you become more sensitive to the sin. And so and you do in your marriage. And so the couple that prays together stays together. You've heard that been said before, one of the things that Herman and Lucille learned early in their marriage, which would be me and Susan, was a prayer hug. And if you've ever heard me speak on marriage, you've heard me speak on the prayer hug, because I believe that prayer together is the strongest bond that you can possibly have, because what you're doing is you're enclosing the triangle. At the bottom of the triangle, the arrows are pointed Herman and Lucille, and they're trying to work things out between them, and they're having a hard time. But when they hug and pray, then they're enclosing the triangle and they're connecting with God. And they say things in prayer together that they just don't normally say because God's present. And God raises his hand and says, peace, be still. And God gives them the, the ability to repent and change. And I can remember Susan and I having a big spat one time. It's probably the last big one we had. and. Um, I got so upset, I said, I got to go for a drive. So I took off and I drove over to the local Rouse Market and I'm walking up and down the aisles. I'm looking for something, I forget what. And the Lord said, and I hate this when he says this, we need to talk. And uh, I hated it when Susan said it too, because I knew I was fixing to be shown the correct way. I've been missing the boat. 
But he said, we need to talk. And I said, I'm not ready to talk. And I just kept walking. And then a couple of hours over, he said, are you ready to talk? And I knew I wasn't going to get out of it. So I said, yeah. He said, you know what you got to do? I said, yeah, I know what I got to do. He said, you go over there and get a card off the card shelf and get that candy she loves and a bouquet of flowers. And you head home and you make this thing right. So I did, I did all that and I wrote a sweet note in the card and I pulled into the garage, set the garage door up and I pulled in. We have a washing machine right where I'm pulling in ahead of me against the wall. She had gone out with a magic marker and it's in a white ceramic kite washing machine and she wrote on there in big letters, I was wrong, I'm sorry, will you forgive me, I love you. And it ticked me off because she beat me to the punch. And those are the kind of things that make marriage uh, worth having and living. Because when you can settle your differences and you've humbled yourself, and of course he said submission is the name of the Christian game. That's how I came to Christ through submission. I had to submit to him and confess to him that I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven for my sin. And so that has to be done in relationships, especially a marriage relationship all the time. And that's why we have the journey. And that's why so many people are being blessed by the journey because they're having that kind of spiritual growth. And as they go through the journey and um, they're learning to journal and hear God's voice for themselves and end up with an intimate, personal, abiding relationship with Christ. And that always enhances a marriage. To know if if we're going to, and I'm not keeping time, Phil, so you'll have to coach me on that if I'm going too long. All right, we'll wrap up in about a minute. I'll, I'll help you out. One minute? Yeah. Okay, I hope it's a New York minute. <laughs> well, a commitment to love. And um, since we have such short a time, I'm going to read you something that I wrote two years ago on Valentine's Day for... Um, Susan, Susan, unbeknownst to me, kept a bunch of the cards, the anniversary cards and birthday cards, Father's Day, Mother's Day cards, Valentine cards in her dresser drawer. I didn't know it until after she passed. And so it's my habit on Valentine's to, which was a month ago, a little over a month ago, is to read the Valentine cards that we wrote for each other. And um, I read through those Valentine cards on Valentine's Day, and this was a couple of years ago. And um, then I started journaling, and I'll close with this. It's Valentine's Day, and I've been thinking of my one and only Valentine. She still is, you know. Susan saved many of the Valentine cards we gave each other over the 50 years of our marriage. She kept them in a drawer in her dresser. I didn't know she had saved them until I found them after she had passed. My tradition on Valentine's Day now is to, with mixed emotions, read the cards and reminisce about the wonderful years we had together and the deep love we felt for each other. I guess some people think that expressing your love for your spouse with cards isn't that big a deal. I guess I felt somewhat the same way about it until now. Now I'm so glad I have these expressions from her to never let me forget what God gave us what we prize so deeply, our most intimate bond on earth, our marriage. 
So after reading through the cards, I started journaling my thoughts. My Valentine. I found the Valentine cards you saved in your drawer. I don't know what to say because they're so wonderful to read and to know that what we said, we truly meant. I guess that if I wanted to be successful at anything in this life, it would be to be a good husband to the most wonderful, amazing wife God created just for me. We loved each other every day of our life together to the point that I guess you could say that every day was Valentine's Day for us. I don't know how this works in heaven, which means that I don't know what Susan knows about me here in my life now, or if she misses me. I don't think that's how it works from there to here. But if it did, I hope she knows I'm still being faithful to her, that I still love her more than ever, that every day I miss her and every thought and memory of her. I hope she knows that I'm still a one-woman man and that I still wear my wedding ring and it's my most favorite possession and that I don't ever plan to take it off. I hope she knows I love living in her house. I love everything and every wall and every level surface and every cabinet and every nook and cranny because it's just, it's just her. I love it all. I hope she knows how much I loved, how much she loved me, and that she believed that loving me and being my wife was a calling of God on our life, and that I know that she always was faithful to that call. I learned about this and her feelings about this called to be my wife by reading it in one of her journals after she passed. She was writing a timeline of her life in a woman's retreat, and she wrote, Being Pete's Wife, A Calling of God. I hope she knows how often I cry because I miss her so much. Happy, grateful tears, not pity party tears, but a thankful heart to God because of all that Susan and I had in our marriage. I know, hope she knows that I'm still a better man because of the amazing grace she gave me and taught me to give to others. I hope she knows that I'm not the only one who misses her terribly, that all her children, grandchildren, all her friends, especially her closest friends, and even people who never knew her but were at the memorial service or may have read The Tug of Heaven, miss not having had the chance to get to know her. I hope she knows, even though I know she wouldn't be comfortable with it, that the Lord wrote a book about her, giving me the privilege of penning it, and that I consider it one of my greatest privileges to have been a part. God made it a book in her honor for his glory. I hope she knows how much I long to see her again on the day when he calls me home to see him face to face and to get to spend eternity with him and her. I hope she knows how I try to honor her memory by keeping her house neat clean and tidy, and then I make it a bed every morning. I keep the closet doors closed and keep the kitchen spotless and the dishes clean and put away in cabinets, all in her honor. I hope she knows that old Cookless here can now make a breakfast of three scrambled eggs with spinach, cherry tomatoes, cheese with bacon and avocado on the side. I can hear her saying, that's good, honey, as she pats me lightly on the chest with her cute patronizing smile with a hug and a kiss. I hope she doesn't know that I put a treadmill in the living room. She'd be appalled. I hope she doesn't know about me being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease because she'd be sad that she's not here to care for me. I hope she doesn't know how much I miss her in regards to remembering the children and grandchildren's birthdays and Christmas and procuring all the gifts and cards for those. 
or that I didn't have a Christmas tree this year or decorations, which was okay with me, but I know it would make her sad. I hope she knows that I'm still so connected to her that I can't separate who I am from being her husband and that my identity is forever found in her being my wife, that she is still a vital part of who I am and always will be. I hope she knows there is no other Valentine for me, never has been, and there's no room in my heart for another because it wouldn't be fair to them. I hope she knows that while she's with Jesus in heaven, that he's here with me, helping me get through all of this that I'm trying to be faithful to his call on my life. Well, Susan, my forever Valentine, I miss you this Valentine's Day, but I'm joyful just remembering you and enjoying reading all the great cards we gave each other. I'm still trying to live up to them. I hope to finish strong and not to dishonor your memory and let the Lord down because you have believed in me and given me your love, trust, and grace. I never want to bring sadness to your hearts. And because I know that God is my strength and my portion forever, I won't love, I won't. I love you, my Valentine. You still are making me a better man. Well, that's all I have time for, guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs> oh, Pete, I wish you could see the comments while you were talking. Uh, we'll come back to that. Let's, uh, the discussion questions are in chat, and uh, here they are. Uh, one, when you said, I do, and got married, did you have any idea of what you were getting into? Two, what did you hear today about marriage that spoke to your heart? Lots of options. What did uh, Lucille Herman and the Triangle illustrate about marriage? Describe the purpose of marriage according to the Bible. A big thanks to Pete. Uh, the Zoom conversation stopped at the top of the hour. Uh, Misty, will you go ahead and unmute for a second? Yes. Misty, would you pray over Pete and uh, his mm -hmm. wife, Susan, and the, the beautiful love story we just we just heard about? Would mm, you, yeah, please. Beautiful. Jesus. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the beautiful love that you poured over Pete and his wife, Susan, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for their example and their continued support and love that still flows, even now that she's with you in heaven. God, I just thank you, Lord. Thank you for using Pete to speak to many others, Lord, on your goodness and your ways, Lord, for the marriage, God, and how we are to be selfless, Lord. And to be as you are to us, God, and to our spouses, Lord. I just thank you, Lord, for you've given us the blueprint, Lord, on how to have a beautiful marriage. If we just seek you in all of our ways, God, and put you first, Lord, and put our spouse first, Lord, 
God, I just pray a blessing over Pete today, Lord, that you would fill his heart and his home with your love and your goodness, that he would have an overflow of joy today as he knows that he is pouring out your goodness onto others. Lord, I just thank you and I pray a blessing over this time that we um, gather together to speak our hearts through these questions in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.